0: Greetings to this part of the service this morning. I, um, it's a wonderful day to be here, I think at this time of the year. What a blessing springtime is. But we would not appreciate it had we not had a Winter. That is so true. Someone said, um, this was, uh, just, just pick out something you don't have and say, if I'd only, if I only have that, I would be happy. If a blind person could say, if I only have sight, I'd be happy. You got sight here today. Are you happy? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> If only I had children, I'd be happy. Some of you have children today. Are you happy? Well, amen. <laughs> but the point is, what we don't realize what we have until we don't have it many times. And an old song I remember from my youth, You Don't Miss the Water Till the Well Runs Dry, whatever that song was about. I don't know what it was about. Probably not a good, not a good song, but it was a good phrase in there. So we have springtime, and we have salvation, and you will never rejoice in that salvation unless you were lost, and that's true too. So thank you for the opening message, Joshua. I know the old controversy, do Jesus had to be Lord of your life, or do you have to make him Lord to be saved? The fact is you don't have to make him Lord, he is Lord. The fact that you need to acknowledge him as your Lord, that is true, but he is Lord. Why don't we just pause for a word of prayer, let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you, Lord. You are good, you are good to us given us many, many good gifts. Lord, it's your purpose, Lord, that, uh, that we would respond in those gifts with grace to others, with love and kindness. That is your will and your purpose would be accomplished on earth. That is your purpose for your gifts. And also your purpose, Lord, that we would see you, glorify you, rejoice in your goodness. I just pray, Lord, this morning that you... As uh, as we look into your word, as you speak, Lord, through me, I pray, Lord, that each one of our hearts may get a grasp of your goodness to us. Open up our hearts, Lord, to see you, to experience you, and to revel in you. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a verse I'm going to read first, and I'm just going to quote it just one verse in Jude 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only true Lord only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I have been thinking recently on the condition of the church in America and this verse seemed to fit so well. Taking something so precious as the grace of God and turning it into something defiling. It makes me think Of a doctor who takes 8 to 12 years of medical training so he can help people, heal people, um, be an extender of life for people and cure people. And he uses that training to help people commit suicide. Or he uses that training to be an abortionist. That's what it's like to take the grace of God and twisting it to something defiling. I also thought it's like a counselor or a teacher or someone that works with children who's entrusted with children and is given the, the task of teaching and instructing or mentoring children and he instead abuses children. A horrible twist of what was given to him and trusted to him. Well, that's what it's like if you twist the grace of God into something it's not meant to be. So I thought I would study the grace of God. And it didn't go quite as I expected. So I'd like to explain to you my journey this morning. As I was intending to talk about how grace is turned into lasciviousness, let me just share you what I, dis- what I discovered. And I'm going to use an example from my own experience. They say ministers shouldn't use out of their own experience, but that's what resonates closer to me. My experience is what I can talk about the most because I experienced it. About 20 years ago, I was a... I was faced with a crisis, I was a young Christian, a naive Christian, a very, God had recently saved me, and I was out of a very cultured, sheltered setting, and as a new Christian, I was in an almost totally new world, I had a new church, I got a new job, I had a new life, I was a new child of God. My mouth was a baby bird, wide open. I wanted everything God had for me. And I had a lot of influence by other Christians, both good and bad. Well, in my new place of employment, there was a man that worked there with a very different perspective on the Bible and on the Christian life. In fact, you could look at almost any verse in the Bible and he would have a different interpretation than I would. Take Pick one. John 3.16. His interpretation. Was different than mine. And you could go on down the line. And every one. Joel was a Calvinist. On top of that he was a Reconstructionist. But as a Reconstructionist. You had to first be a Calvinist. So. For the first time, not the first time, but for the first real time in my Christian life, I faced, I was faced with a convincing, compelling, articulate and knowledgeable man that knew the Bible a lot better than I did and was able to, in fact, he knew my responses to him before I said them because he had gone all through with his arguments. And there I was, as a young Christian, faced with this. He was more educated. He was more experienced. He was very worldly-wise. In fact, I don't really know what the outcome would have been, but I had some good friends, especially one close friend at work that we talked a lot. And so, I began... A serious study on Calvinism out of that need. In fact, that crisis developed, probably probably something that was already budding in me, but that crisis developed an intense desire to know the word of God. Some of you know what I'm talking about. That when a crisis has come in your life, as a response to that, you begin to to try to understand more of the area you had in crisis you had the crisis in and so this was a crisis it became important to me to know what the bible says what god's will is so i could be equipped during this time i broke my ankle and i rejoiced a whole month With nothing to do but lay on the sofa, be with my family, and study God's word. I mean, that was close to heaven. Later on, when my wife was on uh, bed rest, I guess, with one of our, probably Joshua, I I thought that she should have that same thought, but she didn't. (laughs) But there I was. I began to study Calvinism in particular. And what I experienced was not what I expected. At the end of an extended time of studying the subject, I ended up closer to Calvinism than when I started. Some Calvinistic perspectives. I experienced something like John Wesley did, which I found out later. That he um, he was John Wesley was a revivalist English preacher in the 1700s, and so was George Whitfield. George Whitfield and John Wesley were contemporaries, but George Whitfield was a Calvinist and John Wesley was not. John Wesley's testimony is as he was challenged by Calvinism is he said this, something of this nature. I, I, I just got it out of my head what I remember. He said, I came to the brink of Calvinism without becoming one. And that is actually fairly close to the position I came to. Now, don't don't stone me yet. Let's let me finish. Calvinism emphasizes some very good things. The emphasis of Calvinism was on the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, the work of God in people's lives. It lifts up the glory of God and the absolute necessity of the cross of Jesus Christ. Calvinism is God-centered in the sense that God is the one who's moving the, the chessboard. He's moving the pieces. God is the one. He's the center. He is. The first question in the sort of catechism of the uh, Westminster Confession is, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. My personal view of God was too low at that time. Probably still is. My perspective was too man-centered. It was too performance-oriented. My view elevated the power and choices of man above what the scriptures actually teach. I lacked an awe and reverence of God, such as Paul says. Let's turn for the first scripture to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 33. After Paul went through how God's sovereign choices, how he chose Israel, how he chose the lineage, and on went down the line, At the end, he just breaks out in worship. And we're going to read that. And Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, And through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. That was Paul's response as he looked into the movings of God and said, It's beyond me. I cannot understand it. The awe, the worship. And I was lacking in that aspect. And so in my study to ward off Calvinism, It actually drew me closer to certain aspects of it. And my life was enriched because of that. As John Wesley did, I came to the brink of Calvinism without falling in. So in recent weeks, as I considered the abuse of grace, the verse that I read about grace being abused is very real today. Uh, Jude 4 in the Living New Living Translation has Jude 4 this way. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. You know, today more and more Christians are accepting Christian so-called Christian, are accepting of homosexuality. For every Christian, every ministry, every church, every denomination, this is a decision that you'll have to come on one side or the other. It's not going to be any neutral ground in this as, we come, as we're going along. There's not going to be neutral ground. And so everyone is going to be forced to come down one side or the other. But beyond that, more than that, today, the call of a life to holiness, a, um, the call to a life that is in stark contrast to the secular society is waning today. And we would say it's been waning for a long time, but it's waning majorly today. The cutting edge of a Christian being otherworldly is softening or it's moving. And in its place, in its place is a moderate accommodating approach to worldliness and to what God calls sin. So instead of the cutting edge being at, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, God forbid, the cutting edge has moved to be sure no one makes the sinner, whether it's a Christian or not, feel bad or feel guilty. Make sure you don't. Or even feel any pressure to change. That's where the cutting edge has come. Make sure you don't um, make someone feel guilty for what they're doing. So, today, there's a lot of media Books, books, and videos, and sermons, and I don't know where all media is today. And uh, they communicate at least three things effectively. Number one, God's grace is big. It's unlimited. It's boundless. It's God's size, which is infinite. That's God's grace. Okay? Number two, as a result of God's grace... God loves you regardless of your life. You cannot disappoint God because his grace is there. In a, a quote from a book you can read, you can get, 52 Lies Heard in Church Every Sunday. There's a book. 52 Lies You Hear in Church Every Sunday. And the author is refuting those lies Steve McVeigh, he said, and this is what he says in the book, to suggest to suggest to people that God is disappointed in them is a guilt and shame technique straight from the enemy of our souls. It is impossible for you to disappoint God. Our role is to simply live our lives with the confident assurance that it is he who is emanating our behavior. You don't have to walk about with guilt or fear that you have disappointed God. Because God's grace is so big, you cannot disappoint God. So what I'm saying is that's a point number two of what the modern, some of the modern books are teaching about grace. Number three, anyone who teaches otherwise that you can disappoint God, on other things, is labeled as being under the law or legalistic. So the cutting edge has moved from massive deliverance from sin for the Christian to experience in reveling in the great grace and acceptance of God. So rather than now focusing on the work that God does in the human heart, it's just reveling in the grace that, is, that God has given to us. In fact, a Christian magazine had an interview of a popular and famous author of a new book on grace. The article title of the interview was, So-and-so author goes overboard on grace. And we're not exempt from this kind of shift, of expanding the grace of God to to a place where it doesn't mean. But, and so I saw a need to study grace but as I studied grace, like the study of Calvinism, as I looked at the grace of God, I began to see in my own heart a low estimation and experience of God's grace in my life. As I looked at God's grace, I became more astounded. I increasingly saw how little of God's grace I actually appreciate and experience. And because of that, I have less grace to give to others. No, I didn't capitulate. (laughs) I didn't go to where these authors are going. There are many abusers of grace. And there are many true believers who are called legalists. But, like the Calvinists, these, these emphasis on grace, though they do it to a fault, they emphasize a good thing. The awesome grace of God. So what is God's grace? When in John's gospel he says, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. What came? When Paul greets people in his letters, when he says something like this, grace to you. What is he wishing on people? You know what a common definition of grace is? Dave Esh knows God's unmerited favor. And that's right. Another one is an acronym God's Riches at Christ's Expense. And we could talk about many definitions, but I would like to use an illustration. I can see better when I see it illustrated. So I'm going to tell you the story of a one man's life. Somebody you have heard of already, and maybe some of you know a lot about his life. John Newton. Who knows who John Newton is? A lot of you do. Born in England... I don't know exactly what year, but as a child, he was nurtured by his mother. She taught him to memorize scripture, entire chapters, along with hymns and poems. She prayed that he would become a minister. Any good mother might pray that for her child, right? And any good mother would want her child to grow up to be godly young man and so on. Well, she died when he was seven years old. And his father was aloof and was absent a lot. At age 11, he took the first of five sea voyages with his father, learning quickly to swear and to curse with the best or the worst of sailors. He espoused free-thinking principles, and he became arrogant and insubordinate. Anybody know what insubordinate means? means he's rebellious. He just didn't listen to anyone. He did what he wanted to do. And he lived with moral abandon. Later on he wrote, he said, I sinned with a high hand and made it my study to tempt and seduce others. It said he ran out of blasphemous words to swear by. So he made up his own. It's very creative. On one voyage, he uh, concocted a little ditty that ridiculed the captain. And he taught all the other sailors that ditty so they could all do the same thing. This was a guy you didn't want to be on the wrong side of. Very bright, very wicked. Numerous times storms, he he was at the sea, he got a lot of storms, and, and he was in Africa, and he got malaria, and different times in his life, he actually uh, began to cause him to consider God when he had some real low moments, and he even had short episodes when he desired to forsake his sin, and this is what he said later on, he said, I often saw the necessity of religion as a means of escaping hell, but I love sin and was unwilling to forsake it. And we could ask the question, when does the mercy and grace of God run out? An article by Diane Severance reads, uh, the Greyhound, that was a ship that he was on one time. I think that ship was going from Africa back to England, if I'm correct. The Greyhound had been thrashing about in the North Atlantic storm for over a week. Its canvas sails were ripped. The wood on one side of the ship had been torn away and splintered. The sailors had little hope of survival, but they mechanically worked the pumps, trying to keep the vessel afloat. On the 11th day of the storm, Sailor John Newton was too exhausted to pump, so he was tied to the helm and tried to hold the the ship to its course. From 1 o'clock until midnight, he was at the helm. I don't know if that means 1 o'clock in the afternoon till midnight that night, or that means 1 o'clock to 1 o'clock. You know, I'm not quite sure, but a long, big period of time. With the storm raging, Newton had time to think. His life seemed as ruined and wrecked as the battered ship he was trying to steer through the storm. Since the age of 11, he had lived a life at sea. Sailors were not noted for their refinement of manners. But Newton had a reputation for profanity and coarseness and debauchery, which even shocked many a sailor. He was known as the great blasphemer. His mother had prayed that he would become a minister and had taught early him the scriptures and Isaac Watts' divine song for children. Some of those early childhood teachings came to mind now. He remembered Proverbs 1. And this is a paraphrase of Proverbs 1, 24 to 31. And in the middle of that storm, these verses seem to confirm to Newton his despair. And this is what those paraphrases of that, those verses is. Because I have called and ye refused. Ye have set not all my counsel, and ye would none of my reproof. I also laughed at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when destruction and anguish comes upon you, then shall you call upon me, but I will not answer. God's grace had run out for a sailor called John Newton, right? Was there any use to pray? He had fulfilled those verses. He had. All he could expect from God was a mocking laughter. And yet, Newton's thoughts began to turn to Christ. He found a New Testament and began to read. And in Luke 11, 13, seemed to assure him that God might still hear him. He said, if ye then, being evil, and he was evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? When he came to Luke 15, he observed remarkable parallel between his life and that of the prodigal son. That day at the helm, which was March 21st, 1748, was a day Newton remembered ever after. For on that day The Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. Many years later, as an old man, Newton wrote in his diary of that day. He said, Not well able to write, but I endeavored to observe the return of this day with humiliation, prayer, and praise. Only God's amazing grace could could and would, not only that he could, but that he even would, Take a rude, profane, slave trading sailor and transform him into a child of God. Newton never ceased to stand in awe of God's work in his life. In stages, he eventually left the slave trade and became a disciplined, began a disciplined study of, of Bible study, prayer, and Christian reading, and he began to think that maybe God had called him to the ministry. And his mother's prayers were answered, for her son were answered in 1764. At the age of 39, John Newton began 43 years of preaching the gospel of Christ. Among many things he did, he wrote hymns, 260 of them in fact. The most well known is the hymn Amazing Grace. But some others that we sing today is how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in our believer's ear. You know, that name that he would blaspheme in the vilest way that he could imagine with his wicked heart. That name that he used to spit out with disdain, that name became his most precious name. That's what the grace of God does. Glorious things of thee are spoken, is another song that we sing, that he wrote. How do we explain such a difference in one man's life? Well, when he was really old, he said this one thing. He said, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And I would just like to read that song. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now, now am found. Was blind. But now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. And then the end one, you can all almost say of by heart, when we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And after he expresses his testimony of how God saved him, he erupts into worship. <clears throat> That sounds like the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to read that passage. You can turn to it in First Timothy chapter one. Apostle Paul was a great sinner. Apostle Paul met a great Savior. First Timothy chapter one and verse, starting at verse twelve. And I thank Jesus Christ, Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me. For that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who before was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. How be it for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. And here's the same thing that John Newton did. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, immortal invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I see so many parallels between Apostle Paul and John Newton. Wicked men. God's grace saved them out of their, out of their full-fledged wickedness and they turning around became ministry of Christ and turned around and worshiped Him. And then we might ask, what about me? What about you? Think of your own life. Think of your own life minus the grace of God. You know, God sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. He delights in giving and bestowing gifts. God is that kind of a God. It comes out of his spontaneous character. He has a friendly disposition towards us. Could you imagine the center of the universe, Joshua, having a face of wrath towards us? He has a friendly disposition towards us. Toward the sinner, toward the undeserving. His heart is redemptive. One definition of grace right out of Vine's expository dictionary, says the friendly disposition from which the kindly act proceeds. Is graciousness, loving kindness, goodwill generally. What, I, what I'm hearing here, and am trying, trying, to, trying to get this across, what I'm, what I'm seeing here. Not only do you give someone a gift, but you do it with real graciousness to them Um, I haven't thought this thing through but um, I can't think of any good examples right now but I think you get the idea it's not just the gift itself but it's the attitude that he has as giving the gift that's what I'm trying to communicate you know I was a wicked young man I could have rightly, in my own arrogant spirit, my proud mouth, my filthy morals, my disobedient actions, I could have rightly been swept aside by God and just discarded. He'd have been just to do that. Now, was I as wicked as John Newton? No. But a woman, or anyone sweeping dirt, you sweep dirt, some dirt's black, some dirt is gray, some dirt is white. But you know one thing about it? It's all dirt. And you know what you do with dirt? Do you separate the white from the black? Sweep it up, it all goes to the same place. I was not as wicked as John Newton, but I was dirt. I could have died before God saved me and I'd be in hell today. But I'm not. Why not? It's the grace of God. It is his mercy. The confidence and assurance of a home in heaven today instead of looking toward hell. And after I believed, after you believed, do I not need the grace of God now? You know, not using a phrase you use. You know? After I became a Christian, I had a lot of things to deal with spiritual pride, struggles with sin, attitudes, and the worst of all, people. Sometimes I think I need the grace of God more than I did before I was saved. I don't know. I need it as much now as I did then. And Paul instructed Titus to teach something to those wretched people on the island of Crete. You know, those former evil beasts and those slow bellies. He he taught them to teach them and I like to read that. Uh Titus chapter 3 starting at verse 1. Paul is instructing Titus to teach these former wretched Cretans. He says put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers to obey magistrate to be ready for every good work to speak evil or to slander no man to be no brawlers but gentle showing all meekness unto all men. And here's the reason. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, But according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord, that by being justified by his grace we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And a rephrasing of that last verse is, Because of his grace he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Life. So what is your grace story today? Can you look at some very undesirable person, either a drunk or a prostitute or someone who's messing up their life, and say, except for the grace of God, there go I. You know, we overuse the word awesome, but God's grace is awesome. No one deserves salvation. God's grace saves us, shows our inability to reach heaven by our own might or by anything we deserve. God owes us nothing. We owe him everything. Today I am saved because of the grace of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, Mark Twain, who was not a Christian, has one thing right about salvation, at least a piece of it. And I quoted that before. He said, Heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. Another ungodly person, Woody Allen, said, Said, I'm not afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. What well, a fact is, he should have been afraid of dying. But today, we do not need to be afraid of dying. Even though we're going to be there when it happens, we do not need to fear death. That's because of the grace of God. So here I was. I was originally planning to talk about how grace is abused. How they misrepresent how people Today, misrepresent the grace of God. You know, it is possible for us to go too far on grace if we go beyond God's intention for that word. We can do that. But that message is going to have to wait for another time. I think it will, it will be coming someday. But I wasn't ready for it this morning. I really wanted to just stop and think about how the grace of God and how we are um, undeserving and how the unmerited love and favor of God has become our life. Now, grace does not mean everything goes well for us, does it? Usually, when things go well, we actually depend less on the grace of God. That's a normal human response. So Paul Peter when he wrote to uh 1st Peter he wrote 1st Peter Paul uh, Peter wrote 1st Peter a letter to the Christians who were facing persecution and opposition and uh they were in the middle of enemy territory and I'm sure some of them were confused some of them may have been thinking well what about all the Old Testament promises that when you are righteous, God's going to bless you, right? Paul wrote the letter to give them a divine perspective. And I'm going to read just one verse near the end of that. In 1 Peter chapter 5, and he said, I have written briefly, Peter writing, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. Paul's, Peter is saying You are standing in the true grace of God. You're being persecuted. Uh, You're being falsely accused. You're being, some of you are going to be killed. Don't fret. This is the true grace of God that you're standing in. Stand in it even in the middle of persecution. So, the true grace of God does not mean everything goes well with you. It means that you're standing in that place. It's not coming out right the way I want to confirm it, but it was, if things aren't going right for you, does not mean that you're not experiencing the grace of God. In fact, you may be right in the middle of it, just like Brian a couple of weeks ago talked about chastisement. Chastisement is the grace of God. It's not fun. In fact, Very, very difficult. But what would it be like if our Heavenly Father, we are going veering off a little bit, and he would just let us go? That's not grace. He gets chastisement, stops us. That's grace for us. Spanking can be horrible. But were it not for the grace of God, there go I. So, another message I'll talk about the abuse of grace, but I just thought I would fo- focus on the positive this, this morning. <clears throat> and I'd like to use one more example here of grace, and this one is a very dear one. Annie Flint. Anybody heard of Annie Flint? A number of people have. She was a girl born, I think, in New Jersey. When her younger sister was just a few years younger than her, was born, her mother died. So she was motherless. And then her father died by the time she was six or seven, not quite sure. So she was orphaned. She was taken in. Her and her sister were taken in by a childless couple. That's a blessing. A childless couple that took them in and raised them as their own children, even though they were never adopted. And taught them the ways of God. And she grew up, she was a outgoing girl, a pretty girl, very, I don't think a vivacious or, you know, a brilliant girl. And as she grew up, she, uh, as she got, uh, went through school, when she was finished with school, she had a she was offered a position in a pretty prominent school to do a teaching, but she her adoptive mother had had a small stroke and her health was declining. So she thought she'd stay close to home, and then, so she taught in a primary school close to home, so she could be with her her family, her adopted family. Well. About halfway through the three-year term, she committed to three years, but halfway through that, she began to develop arthritis. A young girl, young woman, developed arthritis. And it got progressively worse, and by the end of her third year of school, she could hardly walk. And um, so she had to give up teaching. And for the next three years, she went downhill in health. Then her adoptive mother died, and her adoptive father died within several months of each other. Her sister, I'll I'll read here a little bit, she got a verdict from the doctors that there's no cure for her arthritis. She's going to be a helpless invalid for the rest of her life. Her one sister was very frail and struggled to meet her own situation bravely. And so here they were, twice orphaned, both of them in ill health and in this condition, and she had lots of pain. Well, without being able to do anything else, she began to write poetry with a pen. Pushing through her bent fingers and held by her swollen joints, she began to write poems and verses. And she actually got a living doing that. Later on in years, she was unable to even open up her hands. I've seen her in a picture in a wheelchair and she's not sitting in a wheelchair like you would think. She's sort of in like sitting on a board. She's straight. She can't, she can't bend. She had a tremendous amount of pain. And she, she lived that way. I don't know how long she lived, but she lived to be quite elderly and so she lived with lots and lots of pain. Here are some poems that she, that she, uh, wrote. And this one, the first one I want to read, is actually interesting. It has become a traditional wedding song in some circles. God has not promised skies always blue, flower-strewn pathways all our life through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God hath not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He has not told us we should not bear many a burden, many a care. God hath not promised smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travel, needing no guide, never a mountain rocky and steep, never a river turbid and deep. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above unfailing sympathy, undying love. And um, as as I think of the grace of God in my own life, God has promised grace. But there is a poem that she wrote that's more precious than that one. Many of you are familiar with it, I'm sure. He us more grace. I'll try to read it. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labours increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials he multiplied peace, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we have reached the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit, His grace has no measure, His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. That is the definition, the best definition I can come up with, the grace of God. And I don't know if I have to say a lot. God bless you.